Hey everybody, welcome back. This is the Big Nerd Podcast with your host, Ray Bisak, otherwise known as The Big Nerd. And today, well, it's October, ladies and gentlemen, and we've got Halloween fever all month. Not just because there's candy involved, not just because there's costumes, not just because there's AMC's Horror Fest, but we've got the lead editor of Dread Central, Jonathan Barkan, on the line as our special guest today. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic because I get to talk horror movies today, and that's one of the things I'm really nerdy about. All right. Well, that's definitely what I'm here for. Excellent, excellent. I can't, I can't wait to talk to you. Uh, so, actually, there was, there was actually some uh, horror news that I'm excited about today, not just because there's a certain movie coming out in a couple weeks, or actually this week, excuse me, uh, Halloween's a couple weeks, but uh, but there's there's been some rumors that John Carpenter might be having a They Live sequel coming out soon. Or, or so to speak. You know, when it comes to John Carpenter, I'm always going to be that person that doesn't worry about holding my breath. The man has done an amazing body of work. Uh, like, two of my favorite movies of all time were done by him, uh, The Thing and Big Trouble in Little China. So I'm always ready for another movie from him. That being said... It, I think he's made it pretty clear that what's really important in his life right now, as he's even said, are video games and basketball. So if he wants to get back into making movies, I will welcome him with open arms. If it's something that he decides, you know what, I'm not really that interested in it, then I will say thank you for everything that you've done. Go and enjoy what you are doing right now. Yeah, uh, I, J- Carpenter's been kind of aloof with a lot of things. I mean, there's supposed to be this Prince of Darkness uh, series coming out. Um, he's also been on record as the Big Trouble in Little China remake that they're doing with apparently the, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, that he's not really a big fan of them doing that remake. Not even a remake, it's a sequel, excuse me. Yeah, I mean, I think we in the in the horror community and maybe even in the film community, there's a certain amount of skepticism when it comes to sequels, remakes, reboots, whatever you want to call it. I think we've been burned in the past with Carpenter when we saw the prequel for The Thing, which could have been great, but then it definitely got butchered into something that just really wasn't all that memorable, which is quite possibly the most insulting thing you can do when you're trying to expand the universe of The Thing. But... Yeah, absolutely. We've also we've also seen that when it comes to The Rock, he makes some really entertaining and exciting movies. And I think a great example was the new Jumanji, which I went into one. I was completely blind, went in with the lowest of expectations. I really had no interest in seeing what they were going to do. And I was on a plane. I figured I've got nowhere else to go. Let me go ahead and give this a watch. And it was actually great. Like, it was genuinely a lot of fun. I was laughing. I was cheering. It was one of those films where you're like, wow, you know, maybe we should go ahead and give, you know, sequels or reboots another fair shot. And what it all depends on is who's going to write it, who's going to be a part of it, and how dedicated and devoted they are to what's being done. So, yes, I'm incredibly skeptical with a Big Trouble in Little China sequel, reboot, whatever they want to call it. But at the same time, I'll, you know, if it's not great, I still have the original. It's still going to be a magical experience. 
And if it is good, then hey, I've got another movie that I love. Yeah, I am a I'm a huge John Carpenter fan myself. Uh, the guy has done some, probably my, some of my top movies, and uh, he made me a big fan of Kurt Russell. So I mean, uh, you know, anything Kurt Russell does, pretty much now I'm in on it. So because uh, just from the memories of uh, you know uh, Big Trouble in China and The Thing, and uh, you know it's just it's just. I'm right there with you on those two movies because those those two still to this day, if they're on, I'm watching them. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, and I don't care how many times I've seen it, I'm still gonna you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, actually, let's talk about how you got into horror movies. Actually, I uh, uh, I'm not sure how old you are. I'm 40 years old. I'm a big old big nerd. But um, like, uh, <laughs> what were your first like horror memories that you have? The horror movies, the which one scared you the most as a kid and everything. So I'm 34, and I've loved horror my entire life, and it was something that I loved in, not just in movies, but in other mediums as well. Uh, You know, I had the original 8-bit Nintendo, the NES, and I was always playing Castlevania 1 and 2. I'm a staunch defender of Simon's Quest, uh, and the music of the title screen always freaked me out. Then I was a big fan of Schwartz and Gamble's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, I still have my three-volume collection with the original illustrations. Um, and I was also, I don't know if you remember the Scholastic Book Program. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So what I did was I, I got one of those sheets with all the books that you could order in it, and I saw that there was a Clive Barker book called The Thief of Always. And I really desperately wanted it, but my parents had heard that Clive Barker wrote adult horror novels that it was kind of very gratuitous, very sexual, and they said, no way in hell. So what I did was I just, I saved up the lunch money that I got for a week, and I didn't eat, and then I ordered the book on my own. And when I told my parents about that several years later, they were conflicted because they were like, well, you kind of stole from us, but you stole for a book. So we're sort of okay, weirdly, with it. Um... But so, you know, I was really into that. Then, you know, on TV, I was always sneaking up to watch Tales from the Crypt and the Beetlejuice cartoon. Like, I was always drawn to to the wide variety of horror that there was available. But in terms of the first movie memory that I have that's connected with horror, it's definitely got to be A Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And it's when Freddy pops through Joey's waterbed and pulls him under, and suddenly the waterbed is sealed, and Joey drowns in his own bed. For some reason, I saw that, and it absolutely terrified me, and it was years before I could watch a Nightmare on Elm Street film again. Yeah, um, there's there's a lot of conjecture over uh, you know who the best horror villain is. If, is it Michael? Is it Freddy? Is it Jason? And I think it's right there. It's whoever scared you the first, the first time. Because for me, it was Michael. Uh, uh, Michael Myers is just, you know... <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating question because I think it goes... First of all, it's incredibly subjective. Everyone has their own favorites, and no one can take that away from anyone else. Um, at the same time, there's also a lot that you can look at from an objective opinion. You know, who has the most kills, who's the most stylish, who has the most personality. Um, and those are the things that you can... that Theoretically, you can say uh, a lot of it is objective, some of it you might argue based on personal taste, but I think we can all agree that Freddy is the most charismatic, that Jason is the most, uh, you know, famous in terms of how many kills he's done, and Michael is probably the most sinister. 
and it's in from for me personally, I'm gonna fall back on Freddy, yes, because he was my first uh he was my first real scare. But at the same time it's just I have the most fun watching him do what he does. Yeah, I mean how many how many iconic kills can you can you list on you know from Freddy over to you know, welcome to prime time uh and be it, you know <laughs> uh to uh, in Dream Warriors. I, I still think that the uh that in Dream Warriors Dream Warriors has my favorite Freddy kill of all time and that's when he turns I think it was Philip into a human uh kind of marionette doll using his veins and arteries. I saw that and I was like, that's, first of all, it's incredibly, like for some reason, that whole scene is nails on a chalkboard to me. I just cringe and I shiver, but I think it's so inventive and so viciously cool. I love it. It's absolutely my favorite. Yeah, I said, you know, Freddy has, uh, you know, some of the, the all-time awesome kills, but for, for me, uh, if, if, if I'm going to talk like a favorite kill, and maybe we'll get on, you know, you just said yours, basically, I guess, uh, I'd have to go with, um, you know, it, 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 it's been panned by a lot of people, but uh, Jason X, the uh, the cryo kill, with the... Uh, is the best kill in the entire franchise. Yes. Yes, it's, it's amazing. It's not only... Not only is that the best kill in the entire franchise, I will go on record and I will plant my feet and say that Jason X is without a doubt the most entertaining entry in the entire Friday the 13th series. I love that movie. That is a that is a big statement to make because there have been a lot of uh, interesting, good, good. There have been some really good Friday the 13th movies. I mean, I thought. Uh, Friday the Thirteenth Six, um, Jason Lives, I think is what it is, uh, was very well done. When they, uh, he was resurrected through the um, when uh, Tommy digs him back up and electrocuted, he electrocuted the lightning bolt. And yeah, I thought they did that was a very good one. Uh, but uh, yes, yeah, go ahead. It's great sequences. <clears throat> there are great sequences without a doubt. But for me, and this is again my subjective opinion, when it comes to a movie that I want to pop on and just enjoy and have a blast watching, then Jason X will win over any other Friday the 13th film every single time because it's fully aware of how absurd it is. I mean, the idea that Jason gets put on a spaceship, it's already ridiculous. So they they accepted it, and they came up with some hilarious one-liners. They have some really great kills, and it's a joy to watch Jason kill everyone up there. And plus, Uber Jason, it's the most absurd thing, but it's really, really entertaining. Like it's so funny. Oh yeah, I, I get you. And then even at the end of that movie, when he uh, crashes back down into what seems like an alternate Earth, almost, uh, and the the, the counselor, the people or the kids are uh, by the lake saying, "Oh, let's go check that out." And it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I I would genuinely love to see uh, to see them continue that storyline to have Jason in the future. Uh, doing exactly what he does when he was at Camp Crystal Lake. I think it would be just a, first of all, he would have access to a wide variety of futuristic weapons, which means, you know, he can, you know, laser beam people in half. He can pull something like out of Cube or Resident Evil and use a net to slice people into cubes. Uh, there's so many things that he could do in that storyline. It's just, you know, that movie is unto itself it's its own microcosm and i'm perfectly fine with that yeah uh, i i you know 
I think for me with Jason, the uh, you're talking about Jason X, and we're going to keep on to this one because I, I like we're going on a good tangent here. Uh, but I, I think the sleeping bag kills. Uh, you know, I think that happened in part six or seven first, and uh, where he we you know the sleeping bag up against the tree. Uh, but he they, he got tricked into that uh, that virtual reality one where he kept doing it. And they, the the girls kept laughing and everything. Oh, I burst out laughing in the theaters when that happened. Like I was the only word I can use. I genuinely guffawed. <laughs> like it was enor- Like it was an explosion of laughter when that happened, and I couldn't stop. The movie kept going, and I was still laughing like five minutes. Later. Yeah, it's. it's- it, it, actually, and you, you look at like uh, horror movies, and horror movies I don't think get their proper due. But a lot of people got their first starts in horror movies. I mean, you look at Kevin Bacon. You know, he he got his start well, in the original Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, you've got a ton of people that have gotten a that horror is very much the starting point for some of the biggest names in film. Michael Caine was in Jaws uh, three or Jaws four. Um, Jennifer Aniston was in Leprechaun. George Clooney was in Return of the Killer Tomatoes. There's just a lot of people that are incredibly well-respected that got their start in horror. But nowadays, we're actually seeing a pretty fascinating twist where really established and beloved stars are deciding to do genre films, such as Helen Mirren in Winchester, or uh, I just saw Monica Bellucci in a movie called Necrotronic. So these people are like, you know what? I've had a lot of fun doing these incredible roles that have garnered me critical acclaim. Let's cut loose. Let's have some fun. What's stopping me? Yeah, I I like watching, you know, going back and watching some of these movies that I don't exactly remember, but, uh, like, I think George Clooney was in another one called Return to Horror High. Uh... And uh, they, I mean, watch. I think it was like he got killed in that one. I think. And uh, um, yep. there was a. Uh, I mean, uh, oh, the guy that played uh, George on uh, Seinfeld, Jason Alexander. He was in uh, the Burning. Um, uh, you know, just going back and watch, looking at all these things, just remembering that. Wow, these guys really, you know, they cut their teeth there. Uh, I think wasn't uh, Helen Hunt also in the Burning? Also, was it Helen Hunt or somebody Maybe else? I- I have not seen The Burning in quite a few years. Actually. Yeah, see? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, obviously, there's, we, we have, you know, we talk about the best of horror movies, but there's also some stinkers out there, and I'm pretty sure you've seen a few that you would classify as, uh, as um, ones you wouldn't go back and see again. I think the worst one I've ever seen was a, uh, a movie called Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, and it was a zombie flick. I'm not sure if you've heard of that one or not. Oh yeah, I definitely heard of it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's uh, it's out there. Um, <laughs> uh, but what what uh, what would what would maybe your the worst one you know that you've seen? I mean, you know, you know, I'm I'm usually not a fan of bringing up the the worst. Like when there's the best and worst end of year lists, I I try and steer away from the worst ones, uh, mainly because unless it's approached with an air of uh, sort of critical reception where it's saying, hey, these are pretty bad, but here's why, so that you can improve your next step. Um, then I just kind of look at it and I'm like, ah, I, it's not worth discussing. That being said, um, 
because this was a major studio film, I will happily throw this one under the bus. Uh, the second Silent Hill movie, Revelations, I think it was called. Um, I'm a huge Silent Hill fan. I've loved that franchise since the very first game came out. I've played every one of the games multiple times. Uh, I own all of the soundtracks. Uh, I'm, I'm just a very, very big fan of the Silent Hill franchise, and I loved the first movie. I think that it may well be the best video game to film adaptation. It's just a wonderful kind of realization that takes elements of several games and puts them all into a pretty solid Silent Hill story. I'm not saying it's a flawless movie, yeah. but it's it's really, really good. Like, I, I really, truly love it. Um, but the sequel, it lost all of the magic that the first one had. Whereas the first one felt like you were actually in the town of Silent Hill, that the camera was there in the midst of all of the, the fog and the grime. The sequel, you could tell that everything was a set. You could just see that it was uh, that it was all fake. It didn't have the same kind of atmosphere and tone. And plus, at the very end, having Pinhead get into an MMA fight with Buzzsaw Face Lady, uh, it I actually threw my hands up in the air and and basically harumphed my way through to the end. Yeah, I uh, I almost walked out on, um, and I, I I don't ever do this, but I almost walked out on the sequel to Rob Zombie's Halloween because of what they did to the Loomis character. They made him a media whore, basically. And that's not what, and just the whole storyline behind everything on that was just, I just I just didn't get it. And to this day, I will, Rob Zombie lost a lot of points with me on that. Although, you know, you remember back, you look back at, at I actually liked the reimagining of Halloween, the first one. Uh, and of course, House mm-hmm. of a Thousand Corpses and, um, uh, the Devil's Rejects uh, are two really, really well done horror movies. I think, but uh, yeah, it's, Halloween too. Rob Zombie's Halloween films are incredibly divisive. Um, I'm personally not the biggest fan of either one of them, but I recognize that it, it, it just simply cannot be denied that Rob Zombie is an amazing visual director. Some of the shots that he comes up with and the visuals that he creates are iconic. They are absolutely beautiful. And when it comes to horror, the idea of beauty in visuals can seem very strange to some, but to us that are huge horror fans, we know that there can, that it's actually very often that there's a lot of beauty to be found in this genre. And he has definitely got an eye for that. So I deeply respect his ability to pull those kinds of images out of that kind of material. Yeah, he's, uh, like I said, he's got a, uh, a knack for, um, the imagery, like, the imagery in House of a Thousand Courses, some of that's, some of that set builds, the set builds on there were just extremely, uh, he said, beautiful is the word for it, um, uh, there's, uh, also, uh, frightening, um, uh, shocking, <laughs> And, uh, it's alluring. Just, yeah. like there's something just really kind of fascinating and yet depraved about the images that he creates. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, the uh, the whole um, 
when they turned uh, one of the characters into the uh, the fish the fish boy. Um, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, jeez. And then, of course, the characters in that movie, who can forget Captain Spaulding? I mean, from the very first part of that movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got a Captain Spaulding figure on my uh, on my work desk right now. Yeah, it's... it's, it's uh, I mean... Like, <laughs> I, I, uh, man, and, of course, even Rob... Rob brought in uh, PJ Souls who's in Halloween Linda from Halloween uh, Halloween excuse me I almost said Halloween too I didn't mean to say that but uh, and for uh, Devil's Rejects uh, so and it, it kind of liked liked how he kind of brings people in for different stuff and everything so mm-hmm. yeah but um, yeah so I mean maybe you said it right there what makes you love horror movies I mean what what was it what is it you know it's it's an interesting question because so many people ask me that thinking I'm going to say, oh, it's the choice, it's the mother, it's the vibe, but it's not. I mean, those are obviously things that I relish as a horror fan. I mean, who doesn't love seeing a great decapitation or a solid <laughs> disemboweling? Like, that's, that's something that we all get a kick out of. But for me, what I think really draws me to horror is that there is a very clear and concise monster. There is a villain that we can easily see, that we can easily detect, and then it's sort of the battle against that evil. And yes, we know that people are going to die, but for me, the joy of watching horror is seeing those people fight to survive. And that's where I get my thrill, is cheering on the people who recognize that life is, this is going to sound very cheesy and very Hallmark greeting card, and I apologize. No, that's all right. But it's seeing these people, they, you know, they recognize that life is precious. They realize that they want to do more, that they want to kind of be better or uh, prove their worth. And so they fight desperately to you know, make it through whatever horror they are going through. It's why I think the first Saw film is so brilliant and wonderful is because we spent time with Dr. Gordon and with Adam. We spent an entire movie just getting to know them. And yes, we find out that they're very flawed individuals, but that's what makes them so human. And that's what makes the climax of the film all the more of a gut punch it's because we we understand that they are aware of their their flaws and their kind of deficiencies and their negative attributes and traits, and they want to turn those around. They want to prove that they can be better, which is the whole point of Jigsaw's games. It's just there is a bit of a you know, he he throws them against one another so it's though that's why i love horror because i enjoy seeing people fight to survive yeah and uh you look at uh you know just talking about you know saw saw movies and how how they were able to actually piece everything back together at you know uh later in those in the sequels and everything how you know they brought back uh you know that how they are able to piece everything back together, like through again to the original. So it, it, it was w- yeah. very well done. Yeah, I, I, enjoy, I agree with you on that. Um, mm-hmm. 
All right, so, I mean, actually, today, I mean, what the state of horror today, I mean, uh, horror movies, uh, I said, they sometimes get a bad rap for being, you know, too gratuitous in their in their gore and um, sometimes not that good. But the state of horror today, I think it's really picking up. What do you think? I think horror has always been in a pretty interesting and solid place. I think that if one really wanted to argue that there was a quote-unquote bad period of horror, we could say probably the early, mid-90s. But even then, there were some very, very solid films that came out in that time period. Um, I think what's changing now is that there is a much better distribution system for horror, and the internet has made it much easier for people to write, you know, the... It's, well, I'll say this. It's not easier for people to write pieces that extol the virtues of a particular horror movie because they could do it, you know, 20 years ago, but it's much easier for their words to reach a larger audience. Because if someone wrote something for Fangoria extolling, you know, Wes Craven's new nightmare, then it's only going to reach the people who are subscribed and maybe to the people that those subscribers say, hey, you really need to read this pretty amazing it has you know some wonderful points and it may change your mind about new nightmare wonderful nowadays you can have someone write something for say birth movies death and it hits the front page of reddit and hundreds of thousands of people that normally don't go to that website suddenly read this piece and then they share it on their facebook wall which hits all of their friends and then it goes to twitter and it reaches all of those people and you have the pickers themselves also spreading the word and sharing it. So you've developed this culture now where we are appreciating movies in a completely different way that we couldn't several years ago, and that's simply because we didn't have the means to communicate in the ways that we do now. So we're seeing horror in a generation unlike ever before, and that's why... I think we have appreciation for movies like It Follows, The Witch, The Babadook, uh, Hereditary. You know, all of these movies that are genuinely very, very good, but if we're realistic about it, had they come out 20 years ago, then we wouldn't be having these kinds of discussions. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, it's just, I, I agree with everything you just said. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, and I think we're getting a, be- a bigger genre almost of, of horror. Now you look at what uh, Get Out became, you know. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That that was just, I, I, when I saw that, I was like, well, that is an interesting take on this. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's the other thing is um, horror has always been a place for socially relevant topics to be addressed. I mean, you look at, you know, the 50s and 60s, and you've got all those giant monster movies, which were a direct kind of uh, response to fear of the Cold War. You look at Night of the Living Dead, and it's a direct response to Vietnam and to the idea of the living room wars. You, You look back on the early Universal monster movies, Dracula is a great example of fear of immigration that was happening during that time. Even the movie Freaks by Todd Browning, that's a commentary on how we had and still have a fear 
and an aversion towards disabled people, even if they are actually the heroes, and they are the ones that are, quote-unquote, the good guys. So to have, you know, a movie like Get Out, it's not a rarity. As a matter of fact, it's, for horror, very much part of the norm. But it got a lot of attention because of the people that were behind it and because of the social media engine that was able to push it. Horror movies in general, unless they get a ton of attention, they kind of come and they go in theaters. But Get Out had people cheering it for a long time online. And I think that's what truly helped its longevity and it, the attention that it so rightfully deserved. Yeah, and uh, speaking of uh, Get Out, uh, the people behind that are behind basically what I have you on to talk about. The, the big thing I wanted to talk to you about is... There's, there's a new Halloween out coming up uh, this week. There's a new Halloween? And I know yep. you've seen it, and I'm very jealous of you. I have seen it, yes. <laughs> I uh, got to attend the world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival at Midnight Madness. Yeah, yes. and obviously no spoilers because I haven't seen it, and uh, anybody that's listening to this probably hasn't seen it yet either. I'm not going to be able to see it till Monday, unfortunately, but I will be seeing it. Um, I've seen everyone, yeah. every sequel I can in, in the theater. I've went back and watched... The original in the theater back in 2007, 2008, somewhere around there, when it re-released, uh, they do every year, they bring it out. Uh, and I had the most fun, though, watching people who had not seen it for the first time, or who were seeing it for the first time, watching them freak out in the theater, imagining what it would have been like to see people freaking out in the theater back in 1978. <laughs> yeah. it's. I mean, the original is such an amazing film for a wide variety of reasons. It's it's one of the most financially successful independent films ever made. It, it created a character that clearly has become a cultural icon. You don't People do not need to see Halloween in order to know who Michael Myers is. And it's even gone beyond that. I think Halloween is one of the very few films where you can play the music and people immediately know what kind of images pop to mind. They see jack-o'-lanterns. They see a butcher's knife. I mean, when it, when it comes to Freddy, you, people know who Freddy Krueger is. They look at the razor glove, they instinctively know. But how many people can you have hum the theme song? I mean, they definitely know one, two, Freddy's coming for you. But the theme song itself, a lot of people may not be able to do that. Whereas with Halloween, they 100% can't. Yeah, that that goes back to Carpenter, and I think, I, and what I'm hoping is for this for the new Halloween. Uh, obviously, um, I was a little skeptical with them getting rid of uh, the backstory for Halloween Two, the original one, uh, 1981, I think it was. Um, but I can see why they did it uh, because it's kind of hard getting past the burn angle, I guess, uh, in that one. If you keep that in there for this one, um, but. Obviously, they've gotten rid of every sequel. They're saying this this, this, this is picked up 40 years after Michael was shot off the balcony by Dr. Loomis. And I guess he was, from what I've read, uh, he got put back into the asylum. And, you know, chaos will ensue from there. Uh, as you, if anybody's watched the trailers, knows that there's a film crew that kind of brings up bad memories. Yep, it's, um, it's exactly as you said. They, uh, they ignored everything from Halloween 2 moving onward, and this is a new story, it's a continuation 
of Lori and sort of her journey in the 40 years since the attack that took her friends and they nearly took her own life. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, what, what, I mean, without getting spoiled, but what was your favorite part of of this whole experience of, of the new movie? Oh man, it's it's hard. There are several moments that are, you know, jump out of your seat and cheer at the screen. Um, I'll go ahead and I'll set a, a very important foundation right now. The new Halloween from David Gordon Green, it's not scary. Um, there is a very tense sequence towards the end, and anyone who watches it will know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's not a scary movie. It's also, a lot of people were worried that by having Danny McBride on the writing staff that it was going to be a comedy. It genuinely is very, very funny, but not as a comedy. It's just there are moments in the movie that you look and you go, hey, that's actually really well written. It's very funny, and it feels true to what, uh, to what people would actually say. There's a sequence where there's a, uh, a babysitter uh, watching a young boy by the name, I think his name was Julius, um, but I, it's, I'm not 100% sure on that. But he steals the movie. He's in it for one scene, and he's absolutely hilarious. He, apparently he improved the majority of his lines, and he's hysterical. But it worked in the, in the context of the scene. Um, and there is another sequence with a, a younger boy, uh, a teenage boy, who gets the wrong impression with Lori's granddaughter. And there's a sequence immediately following a very awkward moment that has one of the best lines in the Halloween franchise. <laughs> so keep, keep your keep your eyes and ears open for those moments. What I what I found interesting is that when I first saw the trailer, you know, and I I think anybody that that follows horror knew this movie was coming out even last year, you know, last year, year and a half ago, whatever it was when it got announced. Uh, what I what I found interesting though is when I was watching the trailer and watching people's reactions to it and the the breakdown of the trailer on YouTube or online is that there's little things they kept in the movie from the first one like uh, you know Michael's uh, the mask is aged obviously but um, there's a hole in his neck where Laurie stabbed him with the uh, the knitting needle and it's still there yep. and uh, Michael's uh, he he took a shot to the eye and. Uh, uh, and the first one also, and you can tell, looking at the mask and the poster from the original, whenever, when this movie's poster released, you can see that that eye is kind of uh, jacked up still. Yeah, no, they they spoke about that uh, when I, I actually got to go visit the set of Halloween when it was filming earlier this year, and they spoke about that. They said we paid very, very close attention to the amount of damage that Michael sustained in his fight with Laurie because those are the things that you cannot get rid of. Like the hole in the neck of the mask due to the knitting needle, let's be honest, masks cannot heal. They are not human bodies. A hole put into a mask is going to remain there forever. So they had to find exactly where that was placed so that they could put it in there. They, uh, they spoke about how Michael was affected uh, when 
Laurie cut his eye, and as a result, he is visually impaired on that side. So there are little things that do kind of influence his movements because of the damage that he has taken. So um, on a scale of 1 to 10, where, where would you rank this, uh, you know? I guess you only do on the rankings, as, I guess, but uh, but where would you rank it? Well, as a as a film, it on its own or as an entry in the Halloween franchise. Well, let's let's do both. Let's do both uh, on its own first. On its own. Okay, so as a film itself, I would say that it is probably a good seven and a half to eight out of ten. There are definitely some things in there that make you go, "Why would you do this? Why would you go this route?" That doesn't. That's not exactly the best writing. Um, there's some holes there, but uh, overall, it's still a wildly entertaining and kind of great horror movie. All right. So, uh, uh, as an addition to the Halloween universe, in the, as an addition to the Halloween universe, I would give it a nine, maybe even a nine and a half out of ten. It really captures the feel of Halloween, the Halloween movies. It knows how to take Lori's character and do something really exciting with her. Um, the gore and the kills are fantastic. Uh, there's even, uh, I'll say this without spoiling too much, uh, if at all really, there is a part in the very beginning where they say, well, how many people did he kill that night? Five. And by the time Michael gets his mask, He's killed more than five people. <laughs> so he is ready to just go crazy. It's 40 years of pent-up patience, aggression, violence, and pure evil that just explodes in a single night. It's just great. I, I think uh, when you say 40 years of pent-up frustration and violence, just waiting to, to escape, you think back mm-hmm. to... Uh, Donald Pleasance, you know, I sat with him for, you know, staring at a wall, looking past the wall, looking to this night, inhumanly patient. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. (laughs) Exactly, and it's the exact same thing here. He has been waiting, and once he is unleashed, it's, it's all over. (laughs) <laughs> I cannot wait. I, I said I. I am pretty sure you're going to see it again and again and again. Also, uh, I know I am. Uh, I'm, yeah, it's it's definitely going to get another viewing from me. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely it's, it's going to be a part of my collection. Uh, definitely, because I I own every one of them now. So uh, even even Resurrection, which I you know I kind of not too happy to own that one, but <laughs> I think just because of. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of wrong, things wrong with resurrection, but um, but uh, all right. So actually, the last thing I like to do with my guests here is I have a as one of the I'm a big nerd. I'm a big guy also, but I I, I branch out into a lot of things. Why I'm nerdy about I collect comics, you know, figures. What's one thing that you that really gets your nerd obsession going besides horror movies? Oh wow, um, probably my immediate answer would be music. Uh, I've been a guitarist for uh, 20 plus years. Uh, I'm always kind of salivating over the next beautiful guitar from, you know, Schechter and PRS. Uh, And I'm always kind of looking for 
new music to enjoy and appreciate. And that, and just like with horror, how we can watch, you know, such a wide variety from psychological thrillers to slashers to possession films to found footage. Uh, I try and have the same mental approach to music. So I will listen to, you know, 80s inspired synth pop, and then I'll go to melodic tech death metal, uh, followed by classical music. It's, you know, whatever I'm in the mood for, that's what I will seek out. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I mean, you're this, actually the second guest uh, uh, that has brought up music. Uh, the last one, the second guest in a row has brought up music. The last one uh, uh, was uh, Ian Riccoboni. He's the uh, Ring of Honor ring announcer. No, he's a Ring of Honor, ring of Honor announcer, wrestling announcer. Okay. And he's uh, big. He's got his own music group and everything else, and it's very interesting. Speaking of which, I wanted to tell you about this though. There is a wrestler in Ring of Honor. I'm not sure if you've heard of the Ring of Honor promotion or not. It's it's wrestling, so that's one of the things I get nerdy about. But um, yeah, sure. There is a wrestler named Vinny Marcellia, and he goes by the Horror King, Vinny Marcellia. And he okay. wears he wears a uh, Michael Myers mask, a knee pad mask. He, he does the red balloons with it. He brings an axe out, has a mask and everything. It's pretty. It's very entertaining for uh, for a horror fan to watch somebody that loves horror as much as he does. You know, take it into the wrestling ring and kind of you know use it in there too. So, oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, you should you should look him up on um uh, on Twitter. Is he Vinny Marcellia? It's but anyway, I got I'll, off I got off topic, but that's uh, something I share with you because I think he's I think it's awesome what he does. So. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. So, uh, all right, well, um, I want to thank uh, our guest again, Jonathan Bark Barkan. Sorry, I, I, I was going to call you Barkin, and then I heard you pronounce your name as Barkan. <laughs> so, I think everybody does yep. that. Though. No, you. Th- thank you for hearing that. I always tell people the best way to think of it is just to think of uh, Star Trek. Just you know, Barkan. Oh, nice. You nice, know that yes. way. <laughs> that way they'll remember it. Or we done? No, that's something else. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, like, thanks again, Jonathan, and uh, definitely uh, uh, when I see this, I'm gonna drop you a line on Twitter. Uh, wh- yeah, how can they find you on, on social media, by the way? So yeah, I mean, I mainly just do Twitter, and that's uh, my name at Jonathan Barkan. And you can also read my work or check out what we do over at DreadCentral.com. Yeah, and you used to be with Bloody Disgusting, didn't you? Yep, for over seven years. Yeah, and that's actually I, I was a frequent member on the on the horror boards back the back in the day. So, yep. Actually, one of my name was Blake the Leper from the Fog. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. real quick, since I spoke about music, yeah, uh, I collect horror vinyl, and the only soundtrack, the only uh, record that I have that has genuinely made me so scared that I had to take a break and, you know, kind of look at some, you know, cute cat videos was actually the score to Carpenter's The Fog. Something about it just sent shivers up and down my spine. Yeah, it, it, they talk about ghost stories these days and the paranormal activities and everything. That is the, The Fog is the most genuine, genuinely scary and genuinely honest ghost story, ghost horror movie that you can have. And I hated what they do the same, or the the the, the, the remake of it. I hated it. it. Made it a love story, but the 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 fog with Adrian Barbeau and uh, you know just it's just an amazing film. If you've never seen it, go back and watch it because you're gonna get you're gonna get your pants scared off. You trust me? Yeah, it's a great one. But uh, speaking of great, I said it's been great talking to you, Jonathan. And uh, I hope uh, 
your uh, your month goes uh, as spookily as possible, as I guess I can say. And um, I know I'll be checking you out on Twitter at Jonathan Barkon at uh, at Twitter at you know at, at Jonathan Barkon on Twitter. Uh, Dread Central again, uh, great w- website because covers video games, horror, uh, horror movies, uh, music, um, novels. It covers, covers everything. You want to go read about horror? Go to Dread Central and check them out. So. I want to thank again, Jonathan, for coming on. And uh, this has been the Big Nerd Podcast with Ray Bisak. And uh, just remember, guys, uh, nerd is not just a four-letter word. It's a lifestyle. Thank you, Jonathan. (laughs) Thank you so very much. You have a wonderful rest of your day.